Tonight's scripture reading comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and verses 10 through 19. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his, left, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king, king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. God, we thank you for your commitment to gather with us. You're the one that has called us here. And, and your intention is to do good to each one of us. You know, sometimes that means uh, a little hurt before healing, a little sadness before joy. But we pray that you would do your work because we know that you mean to save us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As long as people have been in existence, there have been dreams. Now, scientists, psychologists really don't know why we dream. But over the thousands of years that they've studied dreams, there's a few things that they can say about them. All of us dream several times a night. We don't remember 95% of our dreams. You might dream in color. You might dream in black and white. Men and women dream a little bit differently. Women typically have more characters in their dreams. Men tend to have more men in their dreams and more about aggression. I don't really know what to say about that. Most of our dreams have negative emotions in them. 
And there are universal themes in dreams, like falling or being chased. I have a reoccurring dream, just had it a month ago, where I, I dream that I'm in my last couple weeks of high school and I realized I've forgotten to register for a science or math class. And it's too late or I didn't go. Who, anybody else have that dream? All right, there we go. Let's meet and form a support group. Um, you know, Sigmund Freud thought dreams were about suppressed desires. Jung believed that they were actually clues into our religious and psychological problems. There's been a lot of study on lucid dreams. That is knowing when you're dreaming so you can actually control things while you dream. They've had some advancements there. And for some people, dreams have really paid off. Uh, the scientist who invented benzene said that that molecular structure came to him in his dream. Use that in gasoline. Robert Louis Stevenson said the plot of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came to him in a dream. Paul McCartney said the song Yesterday came to him in a dream. I don't know if you'll be so fortunate. I haven't been so far. But there's also spiritual payoff in dreams. As you look at the history of God's communication with people, in earlier times, before he finished his book, he would communicate through visions and dreams and various other ways. It was called, it was special revelation. And so here we have the great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II, has a dream of a fierce statue, a fierce image, and then a stone that crushes the image and he's troubled by it. None of his magicians or wise men can help, yet one of four Jewish youths, which he had carried off in exile, can interpret the dream, Daniel. And as he interprets this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is on the road to a couple lessons that God means to teach him. One being that his power and his will are not ultimate, but God's are. He will find out that the limitations of humanity and the help of divinity. And we've been thinking about what it means to be a faithful ambassador, a faithful represent, representative of God in this city and in the world. And we have the same lessons we need to learn. The limitations of our humanity, the help of divinity. Let's look at those together. The things that our fellow men and women can do are just amazing, astonishing. Uh, whether it's a baseball team pulling off a no-hitter, like the Nats just did, whether it's someone that can sing a song that stills a room, whether it be a group of scientists and doctors that can invent drugs that extend the life of those with HIV or therapies that target cancer, amazing things that we see done and yet there are limits. I was reading a popular science magazine article on advancements that humans have made, and under each one they had the same paragraph, and it read this. No matter how we enhance our natural capabilities, our potential is bound by certain scientific principles, laws of physics, biomechanics, and thermodynamics that don't yield to human ambition. We may get a couple seconds faster running, 
maybe in 30 seconds faster running, but we're not going to get three minutes faster running. There are limits to what we can do simply by who we are. And these limits extend not to just our physical bodies, but our ability to control events, to control people, to control our own destiny, to control history. We're faced with those things. Nebuchadnezzar is a gifted, ambitious, ruthless, proud leader. And God means to teach him this lesson. Historians tell us that in his inaugural address, this is what he prayed to his God, Marduk. O merciful Marduk, may the house that I have built endure forever. May I be satiated with its splendor, attain old age with abundant offspring, and receive tribute of the kings of all regions from all mankind. That's not a shy prayer, is it? And it would appear here that God actually answered part of that prayer of Nebuchadnezzar. He got the upper hand on the Assyrians. He holds off the Egyptians. He conquers Judah. His projects are well known today. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven great wonders of the world, ancient wonders of the world, by his hand. He was able to build a bridge across the Euphrates. He built a wall so thick around the city that it was, uh, they were able to race chariots on top of it. It was 56 miles in length. This was someone that pulled off some impressive things. And yet, this dream has really got him down. He's had a dream of a statue with a head of gold, chest and arms that are silver, middle thighs that are bronze, legs that are iron, and feet iron and clay. And a stone comes in, uncut by human hands, and dashes it all, and then becomes a mountain. And he doesn't know what to do with that. He was terrified by the dream, it says. Fierce. And so he, he, we have another sleepless king here, if you remember the book of Esther. And so he calls his magicians and wise men, and he doesn't say interpret the dream first. He says, I want you to tell me the dream, because he wants them to know if they're for real. And he gives them a little incentive. This is what he says. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses laid in ruins. And then he says there will also be some rewards if you do it. Yet they're not able to do it, so the edict goes into motion, and one day Daniel and his friends find someone comes to the door, and they go, uh, sorry, but we're going to have to kill you. And Daniel says, well, wait a second, give me a little background information here. He tells them about the dream, and Daniel, in boldness and faith, says, Tell the king I'll show up at this time and I'll tell him the interpretation. He doesn't have the interpretation yet, but he says that. And then Daniel goes back to his companions and he says, we've got to seek the Lord together. And God gives him the answer. And when he comes to Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't say, I'm your man. This is what he says. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And this is lesson number one for Nebuchadnezzar. He needs God to reveal himself. And it's the same for you and I today. Our lives will be like a dream that we cannot interpret unless God reveals himself to us. We might find that we're able to accomplish many things in our lives, but we never really have understanding. We might get successful in scaling 
the great you know, ladder of Washington, D.C., only to find it, as one person said, is leaning against the wrong building. We may find that we can do a five-year plan, but we don't understand eternal plans. We may find that we're successful at raising our kids to protect them and give them opportunities, but we haven't taught them how to endure adversity. There's many things we can accomplish without God revealing himself to us. But in the end, none of them are significant because they don't last. We'll, we'll be able to understand what and how, but not really why and who. I was reading a review that was in the Huffington Post a couple years ago, and it was a review of Stephen Hawking's book, Grand Design, and it was written by a fellow scientist, uh, a Templeton Prize-winning scientist, a high-energy scientist named Russell Stenard. And this is what he said. I thought it had refreshing insight. The job of science is to describe the world we find ourselves in, but it appears to fall short of explaining why we are presented with this kind of world or why there should be a world at all. All we can realistically do is achieve whatever knowledge is open to us to understand. This might well fall short of expectations of my optimistic fellow scientists, but I think a little humility is in order. This is a man that had dedicated himself to the worthy pursuit of science and embraced its values, but still understood it might tell us what and how, but it can't get us to why. It can't help us understand why the earth sits like, you know, a jewel in a cave, right? Just beaming in the universe. Why it's filled with wonder, God of wonders. It can't explain why it feels like home to us, an imperfect home, but why it feels like a home in a habitat. And so the revelation of God is what does that for us. And it's just not intellectual gaps. The revelation of God also helps us with our moral limitations. Have you ever had the experience when your character blinded you from seeing the truth, your anger or your pride? Of course you have. Nebuchadnezzar has the same problem. Historians uh, note that for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with insanity. They don't know why he was, but if you go to Daniel chapter 4, you'll get insight into why. God afflicted Nebuchadnezzar because of his immense pride. He was surveying Babylon, and he said, Look at Babylon that I have created to the glory of my majesty. And God said, Oh, yeah? And Nebuchadnezzar found himself in a bad place for seven years. It's the revelation of God that exposes us. It's the revelation in the Word of God that pierces us in a way that maybe we don't prefer, but pierces us in a way that brings healing. It's the revelation of God that is light in the middle of very dark things, like a dark week when we have to deal with the horror of murder in a church in Charleston. And that event really presents two revelations. One is the revelation of racism a manifesto of hatred, a revelation of bondage to evil. I can't not do this. But it wasn't the last word, actually. That revelation was drowned out by a bigger revelation, a word that preceded it during a Bible study in a church, a word that went forth even as guns were being reloaded. 
and a word that got the last word as a perpetrator stands before victims and hears inexplicable forgiveness. That's the revelation of God that speaks in a way that human words can't understand. And for you, maybe it's the bewilderment of evil like this week, or maybe it's just your daily life that has got you stymied, a diagnosis that you're afraid of, conflict in your family or your friendships, and it just seems like you can't get past it. Maybe you're new to the city and you feel lost, or you're an intern and you wonder, what's going to happen after I leave? All these things that you and I just have blanks on, we don't understand. And so we are tempted to do what the magicians did. This is what they said to Babylon, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. They said to him, the, king that, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Don't you know, Nebuchadnezzar? Our gods, they don't interact with our daily life. They don't speak to us. Our gods don't care about our daily grind. Don't you understand that? This is far too difficult. And then he hears a knock at the door, and it's Daniel. And Daniel tells him about a different God. A God who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. A God that revealed himself to Abram, a man without a child. A God that revealed himself to Moses and a nation through an inscripturated word. A God that says, though I live in a high and lofty place, I dwell with he who is contrite and lowly. And a God that not only dwells with flesh, but a God who came in the flesh. The book of Hebrews would say, in past times, God spoke through dreams and visions. But in these last days, he came in person. He came in the person of his son because he wanted to speak to you and I, to give the final word. How much do you believe this evening that God wants to speak to you? Where are you going to hear the voice? Do you hear a God who longs to father you? Daniel speaks about the God of his fathers. My friends, we have such an opportunity and a privilege before us don't ever believe the absurd lie that God would create you and not care to speak to you. It's the Christian faith that says he will go to the point of death and resurrection so he can speak to you. And so he overcomes the limits of our humanity. But this leads us to the last point, the help of divinity. It's striking again that even though Daniel doesn't have the interpretation of the dream, he tells the captain of the guard, set the date. Now, was he doing that just to bluff like the magicians? I, I don't think so. Was he doing that out of presumption and pride, like he would come up with it? Well, that couldn't have been the case because immediately he gathered his friends and he prayed. And check that out. He didn't believe he could do it by himself. He needed corporate prayer. He needed other people to lift up his cause. Sometimes I feel like you and I don't advance in the struggles we're having because it takes a different level of humility and courage to go to people and say, I need your help. Not just about, you know, my broken leg. But I need you to pray about this deepest struggle that I have in my soul. This dark thing that lives in my attic. And so he goes in desperation 
And he says we need to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Though Even though Israel is in exile because of their own sin, he believes that God is still prone to show mercy. He must have known the psalm of Psalm 121. And I love when God includes things in our worship service before I even know about it. You know, they just sang Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? I had it on my text to bring to you. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. That was a song of ascent. That's a song that they would sing as they did a pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem. And it was a parable of sorts about the way God is with you through all the journey of your life. He will be the help for us at any turning point in our lives. And then it's echoed more poignantly in the New Testament. After Jesus Christ, the Son comes with his word. And we get to see even further. Don't you know that we're living in the age where we have the most revelation about God? We get to know the most about his grace and his kindness. But this is what he says. For we do not have a high priest, this is Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have a God that came in the flesh. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us, to help you. I don't think Daniel knew exactly how God was going to show up with his mercy and kindness, but he was confident that he would. That's what the prayer of faith is. The prayer of faith isn't dictating to God, this is what you must do. Because God will always do what's better than that. But the prayer of faith can say, I know that you will show me grace. I know that you will show me mercy. Usually it's going to be the last minute. But you can pray in that way about your life and your struggle. Eyes wide open. But it raises a question, when you get a bad dream, or when your dreams are crushed, what's your reflex response? When the small crisis comes this week or the big crisis comes next week, what leaps out of you? I'm sorry to say many times for me it's just anxiety and anger. <laughs> That's what happens to me. But where do you go? Do you turn inward to do your, your own magic? You become the magician. Where do you find yourself falling into the words of, you know, the, the wise men that said, you know, yes, don't I know that God doesn't care about the lowly and the flesh? He didn't come into my everyday. Do you begin to believe that? Or do you believe that God will give you mercy for you, for you, your mercy? And the meaning of the dream confirms that more with us. Daniel tells what, the, what uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreamt, and then he tells him what it meant. He tells him there, were, there will be four kingdoms. The head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the Neo-Babylonian kingdom. And it's all its splendor and glory, and there wasn't a kingdom to follow like it. In the fact that it was unified in what it accomplished. But after that, he then goes to say that the chest and arms will be another kingdom. The thighs and legs, another one. The, next, the, the feet, another one. And if you look at it in succession, it's the Neo-Babylonian uh, kingdom, it's the Medo-Persian kingdom, it's the Grecian kingdom, and it's the Roman kingdom. In fact, it, it falls in line that way so much that scholars have said there's just no, no way in 602 that Daniel could have made this prophecy. But do you see what the bias is there? The bias is there's not a God that can speak 
or know the future. And the conviction of the Bible is, yes, there is. And so Daniel lays this out. And in it, there are two things he says. One is there a God, there's a God that rules over rulers. <laughs> he rules over all the events throughout all history. As the book of Isaiah would say, he sits above the circle of the earth, this God. As Daniel would say, he removes kings and he sets up kings. He brings princes to naught. He brings rulers to a place of emptiness. He is the one that co-ops kingdoms for his own purposes. That's the first thing he says. Nebuchadnezzar's day is gone. Xerxes' day is gone. Alexander Great's day is gone. Nero's day is gone. Let's go through every powerful leader, including today's leaders. No disrespect to them, but if they're wise, they'll know that they are stewards and not kings. Because God rules over history. And as you know, we face another uh, election year brewing. It's good for people of faith, the church, Christians, to follow the example of faithful ambassadors like Joseph and Esther and Daniel. Because if they were able to keep their heads and not panic and freak out in the days that they were living in, how much more can Christians do that? How much more should they be able to do that? Because of the God that reigns. As one writer said, the final word of history does not live with the new and improved version of man or anything he has made or accomplished. Rather, it lies in something radical, a rock not hewn by human hands. And that brings us to the last point, the stone. It's not just God ruling over rulers, but the kingdom that he builds. The stone comes in and it crushes and it becomes a mountain and it fills the earth. And it represents the kingdom of God and the king of God, the Messiah. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament, quoting from Psalm 118, says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus would say, everyone that falls on this stone or the stone that falls on them will be crushed. He was talking about himself. And so the stone of God that comes in is a stone of judgment. But it's also a stone of salvation and a stone of hope. It reminds us of another king's dream, Martin Luther King's dream. And as I have a dream speech, he says the line, maybe out of this mountain of despair, we can cut away this stone of hope. And of course, we have a monument in our city that speaks to that. And that stone is Christ. That's the stone of hope. He's the stone that you find in the early church. It's the stone that God will bring in and build his kingdom. All these kingdoms that are built upon the idolatry of their nationalism or the idolatry of their ethnicity and race, all these smaller kingdoms he crushes so he built, so the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our God and Lord. A kingdom of every tribe, tongue, and nation that he brings together. 
It's the stone that slashed into the early church and broke down the walls between the Jew and Gentiles and created a body that no one would have believed. It's the stone that sent the church and skipped across the ocean of the earth, as Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And here we are 2,000 years later with a global pan-ethnic bride of a church. It's the stone that spurred on the seed of the civil rights movement and led people to make courageous stands. And it's the stone that will remove the blinders on our eyes. It's the only thing that can remove the blinders of these eyes. Because you must have something more powerful than yourself to be able to see yourself. It's this gospel stone that will move out into our nation and move on to our city. And even in this denomination, last week, Mike and I were at the annual meeting of the PCA. And uh, there was a personal resolution made by two white Southern ministers who were also academics professors, and it was a beautiful resolution. It was a call for the denomination to own its covenantal sins, confess and repent of them. It led into hours of debate and discussion. And if I had to be honest, there was much of it that discouraged me. We are way too late and have far too long to go. But there were some glimmers of hope. One were my fellow uh, brothers, black pastors that stood up and spoke so powerfully and eloquently. When I spoke on the floor, I said, what impresses me is I, I can't imagine the long suffering and the patience and the grace of these ministers of color in our denomination. It astonishes me. It inspires me to be better. That was a glimmer of hope. Another glimmer of hope was to see one of the founders of the denomination, one of the 12 people that founded the denomination, stand up and say, I was there during that time. I started the church during this time, and I didn't lift a finger to help anybody. And I confess that sin before you. That was a hope. And there was also hope in the end as uh, there was a friendly protest made or a powerful protest made about our failure to be able to act not only now but in the future. And I, well, let me clarify that. This thing is before us now. And uh, there's new energy that the time is too late. We must, we must see the church grow into what it's meant to be. And so there were two to 300 ministers that stood up and signed a protest. So that stone needs to work even in this denomination. And it needs to work in this church. You know, it may not be that we pick up a gun, but we just don't lift a finger, right? All of us can be prone to that. And so the call of the gospel, as it did with the Jew and Gentile, and it does around the world, calls us, especially those of majority culture, but all of us, to say, I want to carry your burden with you. I want to know your story. Tell me, teach me. This is the humility of the gospel. This is what the Christian church has always done well when it did it right. And so that stone comes in and it bangs away and it causes a lot of dust and it causes some pain, but out of it comes a beautiful kingdom. 
the kingdom that God meant for there to be. And he will have that kingdom. He will have it. It's just a matter of we're going to be part of it. We're going to be part of that joyful gathering. And we'll need the help of divinity for it. In our city that lives with deep wounds, our nation that lives with wounds, our denomination, even our church here. But praise God, we have the help of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much. We are confronted with our limitations, but we thank you, O Lord, for the help that you will give. In Christ's name, amen.